This is exactly right. We're encouraged to think of parenting as a job and to sort of grade ourselves on how well we're doing in that job. But really, it's it's a relationship that's about cultivating and nurturing this bond between parent and child. I think when you approach it that way, there's much less guilt and there's much less of a feeling of, I can't mess this up because relationships come with the always the possibility of rupture and the possibility of repair. That's what relationships are all about. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I am Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, You can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and those you care about while living your life to the fullest. Today's show is The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain with our guest, Annie Murphy-Paul. Annie is an acclaimed science writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, Scientific American, Slate, Time Magazine, and many, many others. She's the author of Origins, which was reviewed on the cover of the New York Times Best Review List. She's also author of The Cult of Personality, which was hailed by Malcolm Gladwell in The New Yorker as a fascinating new book. And she's currently a fellow in New America's Learning Sciences Exchange. Annie has spoken to audiences around the world about learning and cognition. Her TED Talk has been viewed by more than 2.6 million people, which we'll be talking about today. She's a graduate of Yale University and the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, and she has served as a lecturer at Yale University and a senior advisor at the Yale University Porvoo Center for Teaching and Learning. Annie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Dan. I'm really pleased to be here. So let's start with how you came, your path to becoming a scientific journalist. My path. Well, uh, let's let's see. Let's go back in time a bit. I mean, I um, I always knew I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know that I wanted to write about science in particular. That happened. I that realization came after college when I wanted to hang around my college town where I, I still live, New Haven, Connecticut, and so I got a job at my school's alumni magazine. Um, which, uh, you know, I know most people read for the class notes in the back, but we have articles in there as well. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so my job uh, at the alumni magazine was to interview professors, many of the professors that I'd I'd wished I'd taken classes with, but didn't get a chance to when I was a student. And I loved talking to people who had questions that they were very passionate about answering. And so that became my own sort of, um, so that became my own quest to share with readers the passion that these researchers and scientists had for their work. And 
that narrowed a little bit further in my next job, which was for Psychology Today magazine in New York City, mm-hmm. when I realized that it was uh, a particular kind of quest that I was most interested in, which is the quest to understand human nature. And yeah. so at Psychology Today, I got to talk to all kinds of uh, behavioral scientists, psychologists, psychiatrists, and um, you know, to me, there's nothing more interesting than people. So mm-hmm. that became my my beat and what I've written about for all of my career since then. Well, and there seems to be a theme. I like having watched your TED Talk on origins, um, and of course, we're going to be talking about your new book, The Extended Mind. There seems to be this theme of wanting to learn about what's beyond what we know. That's very interesting. I have written three books now. One was on, uh, one was a scientific critique and cultural history of personality testing. Another was origins, which you mentioned, which is about the science of prenatal influences. And now the extended mind, which is about a new way of thinking about intelligence. And Mm -hmm. I think you're right that there is a common thread that links those three books. And it's about, I'm interested in the question what makes us the way we are. Mm -hmm. And I'm not satisfied with the conventional answers to that question. So I'm drawn to um, other kinds of explanations, um, whether it's, you know, the nine months in the womb before we're born is a crucial time for shaping the individual. But we, when we talk about nature versus nurture, we don't, we don't, we often leave that out, you know, so that intrigued me. And, and, and that, um, let's dive into that because that, um, you know, immediately when I watched your Ted talk, of course, the premise of this that you will be talking to everyone about is like, is, is when does learning start? Like, that's the big question. And then of course, what you found is that it starts long before, uh, humans emerge into this world with us. I immediately, I felt this tightening of my chest. Our kids are older. I was like, oh my gosh, what, what? looking back what was their pre what was their first 9 months like what were we doing where were we how stressed out were we what were they listening to what were we saying and it's like that felt that's big i know and i was pregnant when i was researching and writing that book so you can imagine those feelings were very present for me as well because i was literally gestating you know my second child while i was doing this research and it was uncomfortable at times i will i will admit that because the evidence is there that what we that what women do when they're pregnant, the kind of conditions that they're living in, I don't want to put it all on them, you know, they're, the whole ecology around them mm-hmm. can either support uh, healthy fetal development or it can it can really be um, it's a very crucial time in development, and so it deserves our attention, even though it may make us feel uncomfortable or a little bit anxious. And I heard that from readers who said, you know, I waited until after my baby was born to read your book or something like that, because um, there's so much that's out of our control. And of course, that's very true when, when we're parenting children out in the world as well. We can't control every aspect of their experience. But for me, understanding what the factors and the influences are is a way to feel more empowered mm-hmm. in terms of what, how we can shape that development in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we're in a culture of uh, parent guilt, uh, parent blame, you know, and so 
Like, where is the line of how much from your experience, like how much responsibility, like what can we control versus what can't we control? And how do we walk that line? That's such a hard one. And I, I have two sons who are now 12 and 15. And that's something I wrestle with all the time. I think one thing to remember is that a seamless and perfect kind of childhood is not the goal. <laughs> you know, I mean, there is, of course, we have responsibility for the care of our children. And of course, we have responsibility to keep them as safe and healthy and happy as we can. But so much of how we learn and how we grow comes from the bumps in the road, you know, so I don't think it's our job to try to iron out those bumps. Um, and, you know, one, one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite parenting writers, and this woman is a scientist as well as Alison Gopnik, the psychologist at the University of California, Berkeley, who says, parenting is not a job, it's a relationship. Mm -hmm. And I think we were encouraged to think of parenting as a job and to sort of grade ourselves on how well we're doing yeah. in that job. But yeah. really, it's, it's a relationship that's about cultivating and nurturing this bond between parent and child. And I, I think when you when you approach it that way, there's much less guilt and there's much less of a feeling of, I can't mess this up, you know, because relationships come with the, um, always the possibility of rupture and the possibility of repair. That's mm -hmm. what relationships are all about. Yeah. I, I really like that. Um, that refocus on relationship versus this outcome. Um, a, a, a one that I'm reminded of that it was, I think a meme that my wife had forwarded to me a couple of weeks ago, uh, said something like, um, the goal of parenting is not to raise happy children. Uh, the goal is to raise authentic human beings who can fully express who they are and their emotions as they have it. Something like that. Right, Again, this right. sort of like this process of raising, as you're saying, relating to people with so many factors that um, people come into this world with... Um, wherever they've been before, their genetic makeup, their environmental exposure and expectations, and, um, and then a whole bunch of other external factors like what we've been living through now and other adverse life experiences that um, there's just so much, um, so many ingredients in the soup. <laughs> yes, yes. And who said we should be happy all the time? <laughs> yeah. Know? I mean, it's not true for us and it's not true for our kids either. Yeah. I, I try to think in terms not of being happy, but in terms of feeling as alive as possible. And mm -hmm. to be alive means to feel the whole range of feelings. And that the more you limit yourself from feeling the negative feelings, the less you're really able to have access to the positive feelings too. So I think it's the whole range of experience that we have to be open mm -hmm. to. Say, tell everyone a little bit about um, the idea of the biological postcard. Uh, oh, yeah. I, that, I really like that. And um, uh -huh. Yeah, it's charming for me to remember that now because I, it brings back memories of being of being pregnant and feeling a kind of communication with this baby that was growing inside me. What I meant when I wrote about biological postcards in Origins was that by what the pregnant woman does, by what she eats, by the emotions that she experiences, she's sending messages to her fetus about the kind of world that that fetus will be born into. And the fetus remarkably arranges his or her own body 
in anticipation of that world. So sometimes that can be, uh, and sometimes we're talking in relation to the, the amount of stress and threat that, um, that a child will be experiencing once they are born into the world and they, the fetus, uh, prepares its body for that or what, or another set of factors is, will the fetus be born into, will the baby be born into a world of scarcity or abundance? And mm-hmm. again, the fetus is preparing itself to best adapt to that world that it's learning from its mother, even before birth is awaiting it when it is, when it does come into the world. Mm-hmm. And some powerful research that you spoke about, um, during World War II in Holland and, um, the great, um, wasn't called the great famine, but it was, uh, what was the name of that again? It was the, uh, Okay, everyone, we're going to call it that it was it was basically they were cut off worst winter ever cut off from um, all supplies and food living off of 500 calories a day. Um, And there was a study on these mothers who were pregnant with these children during this time. And you talk about the research showing that these babies actually have growing up have a lot more health issues for really interesting reasons. Yes. So the babies who were born to mothers who were effectively starved because mm-hmm. of these wartime, uh, because of these wartime conditions, their bodies were adapted. I mean, this is a, it's an adaptive process wherein the, the bodies of developing fetuses are preparing themselves for the lives that, that as they understand it, they're going to be living and so they were their bodies were being prepared as they were growing in the womb their bodies were being prepared for a world of scarcity now that period that wartime period of of scarcity only lasted for a short time and after that we went back to a, actually post war abundance so the mismatch between the kind of world that these fetuses expected in, in, in a biological sense and the kind of world they actually grew up in produced all these health problems so that they were, their bodies were prepared for a short, difficult life of scarcity. And instead they were born into this world where there was endless food and, and nutrition. And so they had increased rates of obesity and diabetes and heart disease because of this mismatch between what their life lives in the womb had prepared them for and the actual world that they mm-hmm. encountered. Mm. So what is from all, as we're, we're going to move on to your current stuff, what, what is a, a big takeaway from all of your work on origins and now what we know about learning happening before birth? What's the, what are some of the, this, the highlights that you would share with our listeners? The big takeaway from my work on origins, I think, is that we as a society really need to take care of pregnant women, that mm-hmm. that the fate of our children does not start at the moment that they're born, that the nine months before they're born are so crucial. And that's why we've got to care about the conditions under which pregnant women are are living. And we've got to do everything we can to make sure that they get the care that they need and deserve because we're talking about the fate of the next generation. Mm -hmm. And we so often skip over those nine months almost because the, 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 the baby is not yet visible. (laughs) I mean, they're visible in that bump, but they're not, but they're, they're here with us. They're in the world and they're being affected by the world 
during pregnancy. And so we need to start acknowledging that and, and respecting that and responding to that reality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this has huge policy implications. You're, you're reminding me of, I think it was 20 years ago when I uh, saw a talk with Dr. Bruce Perry, which many know as a uh, premier brain researcher and neuroscientist. Um, and he was talking about, he was focusing on the zero to three, I think at the time and, and, and talking about how, when you just look at the money that's spent on mental health and well-being of adults in budgets versus young children, this is, I think, right when First Five and all of these other programs were starting, it was, you know, just in a, a hugely more um, significant budget for adults, which understandable. But he said, like, we're missing the boat because these are the kids that grow up to the adults that have these challenges. But your your research is bringing it back before zero. Before zero, right. And it's hard to remember, but that was a real paradigm shift to think of children that young. Again, there used to be this idea that that was not a period that had a lot of significance, that um, only the stuff that happened later really mattered. But now we know it's the early stuff that really matters. And I'd love to bring that paradigm shift back to even before birth to say that period is really, really important too. Yes, Okay, so tell us what led to your latest work um, and that quest to search to boldly go where we have not gone before. Right, right. Well, so I mentioned that I was pregnant when I was researching and writing Origins. And then, of course, I had that baby and those babies, those two babies grew up and went to school. And so I became I found myself very interested as they started school and started this formal process of learning. I became really interested in the science of learning and what we knew about that. And it's a huge field. It's a a very diverse field that draws on a lot of disciplines. There's not really a kind of grand unifying theory of learning. So for a, a while, I just kind of wandered around in this in this abundant, you know, almost like a meadow of, of, of research findings, like plucking here and plucking there. And there were so many interesting avenues to follow. But after a few years of doing that, I started to notice that there were some themes emerging. And one of the ones that really grabbed me was that we imagine that thinking goes on in here, in our inside our heads. Mm-hmm. And we have this idea that it's the brain that is the engine that drives all of our intellectual activity. I mean, we even, if somebody's smart, we even call them a, a brain. You know, I mean, we, yeah. we really kind of isolate the brain and separate it from, from the body, from the world, the stuff of the world, from other people. And we, we think of thinking in this very constrained and limited way. But what these new research directions that I was paying attention to, what, what this, these new bodies of research were saying was that, no, that's not how thinking happens at all. Thinking is not this process that is sealed inside your head. It's more like this dynamic process of assembling resources from, from the brain but also from the body and also from, you know, the tools we use, the physical spaces in which we learn and work and other people, other people's minds. And yet, and that's just a much more expansive way of thinking about thinking. Um, And it goes under the name of the extended mind, which is an idea emerging from philosophy of all places. So you can see I did range pretty widely to find, to find and bring back this idea. 
So more than 20 years ago, in 1998, two philosophers named Andy Clark and David Chalmers wrote an article called The Extended Mind, in mm-hmm. which they basically asked the question, where does the mind stop and the rest of the world begin? And, you know, we have a pretty knee-jerk answer to that, right? I mean, it, stop, it stops at the skull. And they said, no, mm-hmm. it, the, the mind is actually this amalgam of internal resources and external resources. And what's interesting is that when their idea was was first proposed in this article, first of all, they were the article was rejected from three journals before it was accepted. Yeah. And and when it was published, there it was met with a lot of derision, a lot of uh, skepticism for sure. And people just thought it was really wacky. Like what are these what are these guys talking about? And interestingly, another philosopher, Ned Block at NYU, said later on that um, the extended mind thesis was was false when it was written, but later became true. And <laughs> what he meant what he meant by that was that in 1998, they were I mean Chalmers and Clark were perhaps ahead of their time because they were they were proposing something that I think we all now see all the time, for example, in in the way that we use our devices in particular. So for example, we all know that very few of us remember many phone numbers anymore, right? right? Because we've downloaded that to our devices. We no longer have to keep track of that. It's no longer in our organic memory. It's in our electronic memory. So I think as daily life in the digital age provided this kind of proof of concept demonstration, you know, at every turn that we are actually extending our minds with our devices, the idea of the extended mind became more and more plausible. Mm. Um, but, but to me, the idea of extending our minds with our devices is almost the least interesting part of Ex- yep, the extended exactly. mind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because that's what technology is intended to do. It's designed to sort of extend our, our minds and allow us to do what we can't do with our brains alone. But there are other resources that are, I think are even more powerful that we can extend our minds with that we tend to overlook. Like, for example, the body, the gestures and movements of the body. Whenever I talk about how gestures help us think, I start getting really self-conscious about my own gestures. But if you start paying attention to your gestures, you find that they are really very closely synced up with with your thought processes. And Mm -hmm. as I write about in the book, Often our ideas show up first in our gestures before we before we say them and before we even think them. It's as if our hands know more than our our right. brains do. So that's one example of how thinking is a much more expansive process than just something that goes on in the brain. Well, and I also am intrigued by the um, I guess what I would call maybe the metaphysical. Or the, you know, uh, now what we think about is quantum physics, what 20 years ago, and maybe to this day is still probably more categorized as woo-woo. Like, I love that, like, we're, we're progressing, you're progressing the science in a way to explain what, as you said, was just sort of like cast off. There's no data for that. You know, you can't prove that. Um, you know, you're stepping into that zone. Yes, and I think... I'm I'm very interested in the resistance to the idea of the extended mind, which still exists. There's still um, many arguments and debates within philosophy and cognitive science about 
this concept. And, and as I'm introducing it, I hope to a wider audience, I, I yeah. do get some pushback. And I, that's, it's very interesting to me because I think we are a very brain centric society. I mean, we almost, we almost glorify and, and almost worship the brain or fetishize it in mm-hmm. a sense. And you can see that if you look at how the brain is depicted, like in popular science, um, presentations it's it's often portrayed as a sort of glowing orb like this sort of almost sacred object you know and we place so much faith in the brain and its its powers and its plasticity but the human brain is actually it's a biological organ it's an evolved organ it has very specific and constrained kind of abilities those are limits that are common to every human it's not about are you smart or are you not? Um, there are biological constraints on paying attention, on remembering, on self-motivating and self-disciplining ourselves. Um, those are built into the, the brain. And the way we get beyond that is not by pushing the brain ever harder, which is the message we get um, from our culture, but rather by what I call thinking outside the brain and bringing in these external resources to sort of supplement the brain's limited abilities. Yes, and and the irony um, of our society of what we push harder and more is that it's been well documented by so many people um, that it's actually rest and recreation mm. yes, <laughs> that yes. often creates the the new idea, the work, the innovation, and the ultimate productivity and motivation. Absolutely, and we're really not doing ourselves any favor by, by exhausting ourselves. And I think we've had a real experience of that in this past pandemic year, you know, when mm-hmm. we haven't had the natural sort of breaks of a commute or a chat with a colleague, we've just been driving ourselves, just staring at these screens, mm-hmm. you know, for mm-hmm. hours and hours at a time. And it doesn't do anything good for our, for our cognition. No. For our thinking. I think a lot of us have discovered that. So two concepts that just completely intrigue me and excite me about um, your work in this book um, are intuition and wisdom. Mm. Um, mm. I know those are big topics, but again, those have always been out there for people and brushed away. And as you said, you know, a, a lot of we like humans like control. Humans like to understand things. We like to know that if we know a lot, then we're covered. If we plan and prepare, we're good. The idea of having a knowing or a feeling based on non-tangibles is uncomfortable to many. And yet, I feel that's what it opens up all possibilities of being human. And um, Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. can you tell us about what you've learned and your ideas about those concepts? Sure. Yeah. I mean, this was fascinating to me when I was researching and reporting the chapter on what is called interoception, which is our sense of the internal signals of the body. And what was so fascinating to me was that, you know, we're taking in all kinds of information all the time from our environment. And we perceive regularities or patterns in those experiences, but those patterns are actually too complex to be held in in our conscious minds, which is is a good thing because, you know, it actually saves our, our mental resources for, for doing whatever the task is that's in front of us. But those patterns, we have, we have that 
awareness of the patterns and the regularities in our experience. And since we don't have conscious access to those patterns, the way that we are in touch with them, the way that we become aware of them is that the body lets us know. This is, I mean, we're, we're all familiar, I think, with like having a gut feeling mm-hmm. that is hard to explain and yet will often turn out to be smarter than what the, in, you know, the, the intellectual mind can come up with. Mm-hmm. And there is a real science of where those gut feelings are coming from, um, that it's what, what the body is doing at those moments when we have those intu- intuitive feelings, those gut feelings, is it's, it's sort of giving us a little poke, like, we've seen this before, you know, we've been here before, and you have some, you have some experience or some knowledge within you that you can bring to this situation. But we can't use that information if we're not attuned to those internal signals. And again, our culture doesn't encourage us to do that. You know, in no. fact, we, we are encouraged to push aside our bodily needs, to, to quash them and push them down and sort of grit it out and, and keep working. And when actually the wisdom and the insight that we need comes from listening to our bodies and tuning in Mm -hmm. to those internal signals, which can be very subtle, you know, but with practice, we can learn to tune into those signals. And I think that's important to know as a parent, because a lot of our, um, our ability and our capacity to tune into those internal signals comes from the kind of messages we got growing up about whether it's okay to pay attention to your feelings of hunger or tiredness or maybe you feel some sadness welling up and you don't really know what that's about, but you you can stay with that and feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, those are messages that we get or don't get from our caregivers about whether it's okay to pay attention to those internal cues. How do people harness the wisdom of the environment and others to use their extended mind? One thing that really struck me when I was doing the research and reporting for the extended mind was the importance of our daily environments, um, the places, literally the physical places in which we do our, our learning and our work and how important those are for shaping the way we think. Um, and, you know, we have this idea in our culture that the, the brain is like a computer. That's the most common analogy that you'll hear, that the brain is like a computer. And of course, the computer works the same way, whether it's um, open on my desk like it is right now, or if I were to take this compute laptop to a park and, and, and be using it outside, the computer would work exactly the same way. The computer works the same way, whether it's the only computer in the room like it is right now, or whether it was next to five other computers. Mm-hmm. But that's not how human beings work at all. We're really exquisitely sensitive to context. And that context can be the physical spaces that that we're in, as I'm saying, or they can be the presence of other people. That's an extremely salient concept context for a human being is, is the presence and the interactions with other people. Another reason that I think this idea encounters some resistance is that it reminds us that we're really animals. You know, we're not computers, we're not machines. We are animals that are bodily creatures and creatures that are sensitive to our environments the way all animals are. And the extended mind is actually about working with that sort of animal nature and understanding that that's who we are and accepting that that's who we are. And I Mm. think that's kind of a hard thing for people who grew up in a Western 
uh, intellectual tradition to, to yeah. accept. Yeah. Well, and this is making me think about so many things. Um, one is um, our work environments and how our work environments, um, both structurally and with um, the way it's set up with people and organization flow, like how that impacts our how we feel, our energy, right? Our mood, our productivity. Um, it also makes me think about when we talk about surround your, you know, think about who you're surrounding yourself with. Are you surrounding yourself with people that are stretching you to be better or people that are pulling you down, people that are negative people, right? All of this makes it, this matters as much, right? As what is going on inside of us. Exactly, exactly. Yes. And I think we are thinking about there is an opportunity here to think about this as we return to our offices and schools after following the pandemic, because mm-hmm. we do have a chance to rethink mm-hmm. those spaces in which we learn and work in a, you know, in a way that doesn't come along very often. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, some things that I keep in mind when I'm, you know, arranging my own workspace or thinking about the places where my kids learn is that we borrow a lot of our ideas about ourselves and what we're capable of from what we see around us. And when we see cues of identity, you know, this is why people put up sort of representations of themselves around themselves on the cubicle, or you might have a, a coffee mug that has a message that's meaningful to you. I mean, we need to actually be reminded all the time of who we are and what we're doing in that space. And so that's why I'm worried about these uh, new plans to um, have bring workers back into the office, for example, but not have assigned desks to just kind of have space that, you know, anyone mm-hmm. can claim. Mm-hmm. We actually need that kind of reinforcement of our identity. And humans have a real need to create that kind of personalized space around them. And I think we might be losing uh, our, we, I think we might be losing more than we realize when we, mm-hmm. when we mm-hmm. eliminate that. Mm-hmm. And as you allude to us all getting, living through the pandemic. And, uh, for those people who are listening to this for the first time post pandemic, that will be awesome. Um, <laughs> is that we're finding with, I mean, there's a lot of kids and a lot of adults who are struggling for a variety of reasons with isolation and changes in life. There are also many who am finding less stress, um, finding more flow, more time because of the op- the environmental options and the ones that didn't work for them, whether it be work or whether it be school. And so, like, I, Annie, I agree with you with this, the idea that how can we take what we've learned and, and there are conversations of hybrids, especially in the workplace, not as much in uh, some school, but I think we really need to be aware of what did work and how can we adapt the system for maximum health and growth? I really agree. If the pandemic is the end of the open office, I think the death of the open office, I yeah. think that would be really great yeah. because in addition to these cues of identity that I'm talking about, you know, another thing we need is protection from distraction. And again, we're animals who are, you know, think of us as like animals in the forest who are aware of, of any kind of sudden movement, any kind of novel sensory experience, any kind of social interaction. We're just really attuned to that. And we can't screen that out. We're mm-hmm. just, that's just how we're built. And mm-hmm. so when we try to be, when we're trying to do very challenging cognitive work, in an office where all that stuff is going on, 
our, mm-hmm. our performance is just going to be negatively f- affected. Mm-hmm. It just is. Mm-hmm. And I think we have this idea that, oh, when you throw everybody together in the same space, collisions, creative collisions will happen and, you know, people will collaborate. And with the research shows that what actually happens is that people withdraw, you know, they mm-hmm. put on their, their right. headphones, they put their head down, they're actually less available to their coworkers. And so I think we need to, again, attend to our needs as human beings, one of which is quiet, protected space for thinking, but then also spaces where we can interact with our, with other people and get those, you know, really fruitful conversations flowing. And so those hybrid spaces, I think are very promising in terms of being attuned to the variety of needs that Mm -hmm. we have as workers Mm -hmm. and as people. How did your research and your writing of this book change the way you see things? So many ways, so many ways. I mean, the, the major change I would say is that is what I've been saying to you. I think repeatedly it's come up in this conversation is seeing ourselves is a, a more realistic and a more accurate sense of, of what we are, what kind of creatures we are, that we are, evolved biological creatures who have needs that are often not met by our schools and workplaces. And that's, and that inevitably has negative consequences for our performance Mm -hmm. and that we need to tune back into our nature as, as embodied creatures, as creatures who are sensitive to our environment, as fundamentally social creatures, all these aspects of our humanity have been left out and we've been trying to reduce ourselves to just computer brains, you know, mm-hmm. and it doesn't work. And I think it not only impacts our performance, it actually leads to a lot of distress and unhappiness and, and lack of fulfillment in school and work. Right. And so, again, I think we have an opportunity to reinvent how we go about these activities in a way that is more humane mm-hmm. and more mm-hmm. in tune with our nature as, as people. Yes. And I just want to highlight the word that you said, opportunity, right? Like, I think we all need to keep looking at life as an opportunity and see the possibilities. And as something that this book really does is the possibilities beyond what we have thought about how we are as organisms, human organisms. I'm also curious as to how this work, um, this, this project has impacted your ideas about raising your kids. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It really has. It really has. I mean, I can think of a number of ways. One was what we spoke about earlier in terms of interoception that I'm, I'm always encouraging my kids to listen to their bodies mm-hmm. and to be in touch with their, with their bodies. And I think, you know, there's an old school kind of parenting that's about finish everything on your plate, you right. know, and go to bed now, whether you're tired or not, you know? And so I think that's really teaching kids to ignore and suppress that internal mm-hmm. wisdom. And I, I try very much um, to cultivate that mm-hmm. instead. Um, you know, I've been really influenced by the research on how movement and gesture really helps learning. I mean, it, it's there's a lot of ways you can work that into just everyday conversations with kids. When If they're talking about something they learned at school, you, you can say, move your hands when you, when you tell me about that, you know, because gesture actually becomes a resource that reflects, but also informs what mm. we're, what we're thinking. And, um, you know, again, it, there's such a bias against this, um, outside the brain thinking, you know, lots of people regard gesturing as sort of gauche or hand waving, you know, that is meaningless, but actually it's, 
it's a really important venue of, of avenue of, com- of communication that, um, that teachers can use and parents can use to sort of get an early um, signal of what, of what kids are, are trying mm-hmm. to say. Mm-hmm. Um, also another, you know, speaking of movement, I think another idea parents have is that kids need to sit still in right. order to work, to, to get their minds thinking. And, you know, there's a lot of research to suggest that kids with ADHD, but also kids without that diagnosis actually need to move to get their minds um, working at their best. They need to sort of modulate their alertness and their arousal. And they do that with movement, just the way adults might get a cup of coffee if they have to work on something that requires a lot of concentration. Kids modulate their alertness and arousal through moving their bodies. So, you know, I'd love to see that incorporated into schools, for example. Some schools are doing this. They allow what's called activity permissive settings where kids can move around or they can um, bounce on a, a ball or, you know, work at a standing desk and not be so, um, so tied to this idea that we should be sitting at a desk right. quietly still right. um, in order to get real thinking done. I think yeah. that's really a fallacy. Right. So again, from Annie's new book, The Extended Mind really just gives us so many more opportunities and ways of thinking about not like learning and being and growing um, for ourselves and also for our kids. Um, There's just so much more out there than we think. But with work like Annie's, we actually can use it uh, to change the way we think and to change what we do. Annie. It's time for the parent footprint moment question. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual or as a parent, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your kids, yourself, or your family. So I, I had a lot of potential answers to this question. I like to think of myself as being alert to those kinds of moments. But the one I I thought I would talk about is uh, from a year or two ago when one of my sons was really struggling with math. He was um, studying for a test, getting kind of worked up, getting kind of upset that he wasn't understanding the concepts. And I should say up front, math is not my forte Mm -hmm. either. And Mm -hmm. so I had some, in in approaching the situation and, and thinking about how it could help him, I had some of my own anxiety because this was not something that was comfortable for me. I was always a word person, you know, but I, I saw that my son was in some distress and needed some, some, he needed some help regulating his feelings. And that was something I could help him with. And so what I ended up doing, and this was not, um, I didn't have any grand plan. It was really a little bit out of desperation because I didn't really understand. I took one look at his textbook page and I thought, I have no idea what this is about either. How am I going to help him? Mm-hmm. And so what we did was we, you know, instead of me hovering over him and standing at his desk, I said, let's go, let's go sit down on your rug. You know, let's just, let's put the textbook in between us and we're just going to relax a little bit and, and, you know, hang out on the rug in your, in your bedroom and just talk about this. And I ended up asking him to explain the concept to me, to make him the teacher. And, you know, one thing I write about in the extended mind is that teaching is this really intensely social activity that often ends up benefiting the teacher as much or more as the student. Mm -hmm. You know, when you can make a student into a, when you can make a kid into a teacher, 
there's all these social motivations and social influences come into play where they they they're able to recruit lots more of their um, their cognitive resources to to um, get their heads around that concept, and that's exactly what happened with my son. You know, he started to explain it to me, and as in the process of explaining and teaching me, he was able to to elucidate, you know, what he understood, and also to see more clearly what he didn't quite get yet. And I asked questions, which moved his thinking forward a little bit more. And by the end, we were like, I think we, I think I, you know, I said, I think I got this. And he said, I think I got this too, you know, and it just, um, it, it, the reason that it's memorable to me and the reason that um, I think it, it was a positive experience for him and for me is that I didn't have to pretend that I knew all the answers. I let him be the teacher, which mm. is um, a really important social role. Um, and in the teaching, we both were able to um, to, to strengthen our bond, you mm. know, as, mm-hmm. as, as mother and son, but also to approach this difficult intellectual problem from a place that was not just about the head and, and struggling endlessly to understand it intellectually. It was, it had all these other currents going on. Yeah. And it, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So empowering for him. Um, mm-hmm. I right. imagine relieving for you, like, right, the job, <laughs> it's not a job, it's to guide mm-hmm. and, and, and to focus on the relationship, mm-hmm. right? And then ultimately mm-hmm. a positive connection and outcome. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There's many more. I know you have many more in there. Um <laughs> Tell everyone where they can find your new book, The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain, and all of your other works. Well, as, as they say, on June 8th, it'll be available wherever books are sold, mm-hmm. which I think these days we're ordering a lot of things online. But um, I also have a website, um, www.anniemurphypaul.com, where I do a lot of writing on this subject if, if readers want to get more information that way. They will. Um, Annie, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom and all of your experience and, and pushing us to think beyond um, in so many ways from, um, from in the womb to beyond the senses. Um, it's, this has really been enlightening. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Dan. This has really been a pleasure. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. All right, everyone, that concludes our show for today. Uh, If you like this show, you like what you heard, send it to others you care about. Subscribe to the show. And as always, I will leave you with the guiding question, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com forward slash ads. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.